This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Who are we on the web? It's about our identity, about who we pretend to be, about our privacy, about our children about our relationships. So a broad, a broad, a big broad brush stroke in, in half an hour. And so can I introduce my panel, who've, uh, on, the, on my right here is Jamie Bartlett, author of a wonderful book, which I recommend, called The Dark Net, which is the exploration of the furthest, most grim recesses of the internet. Quite an extraordinary book, I really do recommend it. And he is the director of the Center of the, of, for the Analysis of Social Media at Demos, then we have Cory Doctorow, who we've already met today, science fiction writer, campaigner, general, know-it-all, very good man. <laughs> Biban Kidron, the film and documentary maker, whose film, um, In Real Life, I think it's called, is that right? Journeys from the bedrooms of British teenagers to Silicon Valley, examining the internet's often pernicious effects on children. And here, in this beautiful code, is Beth Novak, founder of the White House Open Government Initiative, professor and author of Smart Citizens, Smart State, to be published in November this year. So let's start with this. It's my contention, and I think a lot of people's contention, that the web has changed us profoundly in just 25 years. Could you start on that, Jamie? Do you agree with that? My, my contention is that there are a small number of people who under those conditions of being behind the screen, distant from the people that they're speaking to, do engage in quite different types of behaviour. They see a difference in their online and their offline personalities, often for the worse, or they see very different types of, I suppose, morality operating online and off, but they keep those two identities separate. And then there's a smaller group within that for whom their online identity starts encroaching into their offline world. And it fundamentally changes what they think, what they do, and what they believe. So a kind of neurological change? I mean, a profound change of character? 
Yes for some people. People, would you agree with that? Uh, uh, yeah, yes, but I think there's something that we always miss out, which is that we behave in different circumstances very differently. You know, it's about what circle of what environment we're in. And the question is always for me, and because my interest is in particular young people, is what is the aggregated self? How does, and who is in charge of that aggregated self? And can, you know, and, who, and are there formal ways in which your behavior is dictated or nudged or pushed that are structural above and beyond. So, you know, I think the best way that I have of describing it is, you know, do you, you know, as a young person, do you want yourself, your immediate family, your immediate friends, your school thing, to determine your reflection, or do you want some corporation to determine your reflection? I think that's, that's the area I'm interested in, and that's the nuance of who you are that we must get to. Beth, do you, you come from America, so... Do you think there's any sort of profound truth you can bring to us from America about this, about this lack? Or do you think there is a change in people? Do you think we've changed in the last 25 years? Of course we've changed. The point is, however, it's not about whether the Internet by itself has altered our genes, has altered our DNA in some way. What it does is it's a tool that allows us to express ourselves. It's an outlet. So for the narcissists who look into the lake and see themselves and then go and post a lot of pictures on Instagram, it's one thing. Um, but it also allows us to look into that same lake, into the data lake, if you will, and see reflected back to us what we can do and what we know. And that allows us to use these tools to do a lot of good in the world at the same time. So it, just as we are, on the one hand, focusing on the web and the net as an outlet for narcissism uh, and uh, inward gazing, we also need to think about what it allows us to do when we're outward facing. So down the street, for example, there's a man named Mark Wilson. He's a neurosurgeon. He works for the London Ambulance Corps. And what Mark says is that sitting next to you in the audience probably, somewhere next to you here, there is a paramedic, there is a nurse, there's a doctor, there's somebody with CPR training. So you know what he's doing? He's putting all those people on a network. He started this year, he's got 5,000 registered medical professionals signed up. And what he can do is that when somebody then has a trauma or an accident, they can rush to the aid of somebody who's nearby and perform CPR. They can give them uh, aid and assistance faster than the traditional ambulance could get to them. And he's bringing this peer-to-peer -peer service to the London Air Ambulance Corps in order to increase and improve the ability to deliver medical services to people. So what it does for us as individuals, it allows us to do good in the world, to express what we know and to have an outlet for doing good. And for society, it allows us to tap that potential and I think to tap that expertise in ways that we haven't been able to do before when we have relied only on traditional institutions. It's a fascinating story, that. Corey, what do you think? We talked on the phone the other day. You seem to think that actually it would just... It would simply amplifies people's behavior. There are already people out there who are uh, unpleasant. Is that right? Well, I mean, I, I think it's true that, you know, you can sometimes be convinced that the person opposite you on the internet would never say such a terrible thing if they were face-to-face -to, -face to you. But I, I, in my experience, I found that oftentimes you get face-to-face -to, -face to them and they say exactly the same sort of unpleasant <laughs> thing. Um, so I, I think we, we've been oversold networked disinhibition, but also that, that we have a regression to the mean in extreme networked behaviors, that um, when you have a new tool come along, people uh, will rush to it and find it engaging and interesting, in part by dint of its novelty, not because of what it does, but because it's never been done before. And then over time, for a huge slice of the population, 
it ceases to have that sort of really compelling nature. So think about, you know, the moral panic over Farmville when it appeared that, like, playing Skinner Box games were going to destroy our society by sucking up all of our, all of our human hours. And what it turned out as you look at what's happened to Zynga's share price and user engagement, is that for huge tranches of people, Farmville was briefly interesting. In the same way that if you go back 150 years and look at advertising, it turns out that 150 years ago, you could sell a lot of soap with a banner that said, buy our soap and you will be clean. And people became inured to it. They regressed to the mean. And so I think that we often mistake that first blush with a long-term effect. We are drawn to things that let us cooperate with one another because that's the project of our species, right? We, we started uh, down our path diverging from our hominid ancestors when we began to labor collectively. We put a lot of energy into managing our social relationships, not because we're narcissists and not because we're shallow, but because the only way you can do something that transcends one human's capability, the only way you can do something superhuman is by working with other people. And to do that, you have to keep track of other people as well. And so it's natural that if you offer people a service that gives them a bunch of social information, they'll engage with it deeply. And the problem isn't engaging deeply with social information about your colleagues and peers and the people around you. The problem is that when it's uh, uh, commodified um, and it's gained by a firm that wants not to help you maximize your happiness, but rather put you in a Skinner box designed to teach you to undervalue your privacy, uh, that things turn out badly. You can see. Well, I think that the... Um, I'm sort of very worried now that I'll never come... Okay, here I go. Um, the debate on this usually comes down to net enthusiasts saying it's just a reflection of what we do offline. Right. And then the other side saying, no, it's making us nasty. But I think that just being a reflection doesn't quite capture what's happening here. Because, as I said, there are many people who are who find certain types of negative behaviour far easier to do online than they would offline. And everything we know about bad behaviour, whether it's accessing illegal pornography, consuming drugs, whatever it is, if it's easier to do, there's going to be a slice of people who are going to do it that wouldn't otherwise have done so offline. And that is, I think, what's happening. But also, your book, you have really horrific journey into the dark net. And there are people doing things who would never have done those things before. I mean, particularly the pornography sites uh, and the women who make money in their little bedrooms doing everything. Yeah. I mean, it's a kind of horrible, solipsistic world which wouldn't have been possible before, surely. It wouldn't have been possible, or it would have been far harder. And there are certainly a lot of people who access illegal pornography who, yeah. I think, had it not been that easy for them to find it, and unfortunately it is far too easy to access this stuff, would not have got sucked into that world. Right. And then that fundamentally starts changing who they are. And it, the, the other side of this is how easily you can become inured to this sort of thing. So when I spent a huge amount of time in pro-anorexia and pro-suicide forums, I started off being shocked. Two days later, it didn't surprise me at all. And that is another great problem, because once you start becoming, becoming a nerd to things, you can very quickly lose your moral compass. What do you feel about that? Because, I mean, you, you've studied kids who have been seriously affected by the web, and not just the exposure to porno pornography, yeah. the idea they've got to be a brand. No, I think that, I mean, on the kid thing, I'm, I'm one of the things that I have found really 
sort of upsetting is that the last thing that they develop is a sense of consequence. So the idea that they are acting in, in the present tense and that they should imagine how that might be in the future is a very problematic thing. It's like literally they do not have the synapses ready until they're in their mid-twenties. I think what's difficult about this subject is we always end up with that's good, it's bad. Of course it's both. It is, it is you know, it makes it extreme. And I think that what you have to... We just have to ask, is it neutral? And I think that everybody would agree it's not neutral. And so in what ways does the neutrality push behavior? Because my favorite thing at the moment is the pool party video from Texas. I'm sure everybody's seen it with the policeman and so on and so on. Imagine being, having an identity as a black kid in Texas and then suddenly feeling the power of taking on that authority and getting rid of that guy, which is something that you can't do. That's a positive, of course it is, but that doesn't mean that kids who are actually in another context are not suffering. So it's not a good, bad, it's both, and it's not neutral. How do we deal with that? Do you, the other thing I was wondering is that do you, two women here, do you think that women have prospered on the web? In the first session we touched on this, that it was, might have been a sort of engineered male wo world, uh, and that in vast numbers of, of programmers, coders, and designers are all male. Do you think it's Is it skewed against women, or do you think we can change so that it is equal and more balanced and fair? <laughs> I'm tempted to make a joke as a, as a female scientist on the panel. I'm tempted to start crying, as, as I should do. Uh, but, uh, but, as, uh, uh, but I am the token American, right? You're, he's Canadian, so don't be, don't be fooled. I'm we're like the, serial killers, we're everywhere. Yeah. Right, and we're, the, and we're the Pollyannish optimists at all times, so I'm, I'm always here to bring the positive story. So I think it's, it's, you know, to follow on this point, obviously there are the dangers, there is the dark side, there are the bad things happening, but there are these examples of good happening in the world. And when it comes to women and minorities and underrepresented voices, what you're seeing is this medium these media as giving, as giving voice to people who have not had voices before, giving them outlets and places to talk, giving them ways of being represented. I'm thinking um, most recently now in the United States of the Black Lives Matter hashtag, where of course recent Pew survey results show that among internet users, African Americans are more than twice as likely to use Twitter and more than three times as likely to be posting on Twitter on a daily basis. And so Black Lives Matter becomes a hashtag and now as a result, police uh, uh, racism and police reform becomes front and center on the national agenda in the United States. And I think that is not uh, an accident um, that this is a medium that is as against the traditional gatekeepers, many of whom are, uh, um, well, shall we say, white and male. Um, uh, they are finding a way to give expression to their uh, to, to new issues and to become part of the public discourse in new ways. But also the same, to, to be fair, the same white male uh, uh, gatekeepers are also finding new and interesting outlets and innovative ways of bringing content from new voices and new people. So it's a, it's I think it is both things at the same time, but giving voice in many ways to people who haven't had a voice before, and that includes women among them. Cool. You know, I, I think that it's important to remember that deviant is not the same thing as bad. And spaces in which people can be socially deviant are how behaviors become socially normed. And, and on the one hand, we worry about it because we worry about pro becoming norming anorexia. 
But on the other hand, if you think about changes in rules about um, uh, equal marriage, excuse me, the, the way that, we, that equal marriage arose was because people could, outside of the remit of the state and outside of the perfect enforcement ability of the state, practice an illegal behavior that was judged immoral and corrosive until social acceptance was won, right? And one of the things that you get in spaces that can't be regulated or that are difficult to regulate is a space in which deviance can progress towards normalness, for good and for bad. And unless you think that your grandchildren will look back on 2015 and say, tell me, Gramps, how did you have it so right in 2015 that none of our social attitudes have changed? You have to anticipate that there's something that we're doing today that our descendants will view as barbaric in its restriction. And the only way that that is going to come to light is if there are spaces in which people can uh, perform deviance without automatic enforcement. Do you, and this is to, a question to all of you. Do you think that we spend too much time in, in this world? What uh, Susan Greenfield, Baroness Greenfield, a scientist also here, suggests is a two-dimensional world. Uh, compared to the wonderful, colourful 3D world of our, our lives. Do you, do, people, do you think we spend too much time? Do you think we're getting overloaded, too overstimulated? I think there's an opportunity cost, yeah? And uh, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit, and it's very attractive, so it's much easier, you know, for me to find out whether I'm posh on BuzzFeed than it is to read a big report on HS2, you know? And you could say that's a better outcome for me. But, you know, so I think there's an opportunity cost. But uh, I don't think it's bad to spend time online. It's simply a question of how you expend it. And I would like to answer the question about women. I think it's bad for, for body image. And I think it's really, really bad for learning about sex and particularly outcomes for teenage girls and boys, but primarily girls. I don't think it's bad for women as such. No. And definitely, we want more women in tech. That's I a separate issue. Go ahead, go ahead. I certainly uh, felt that I was spending far too much time online <laughs> researching my book. Um, <laughs> and, and I was getting very, very depressed. And it wasn't just because I was looking at you know, pro-Anna sites and neo-Nazis and internet trolls. Partly, it was, that was very, very exciting. It was thrilling. It was terrifying. But it was very stimulating. And then actually, things in the real world started to become a little bit drab by comparison. Mm. And I realized that was part of the problem. That you sort I was constant, and, and I know my story is a, a particularly negative one because of the research I've done, and that's what I'm here to talk about. But I ended up finding that, you know, I was always looking for the next exciting thrill because I've been so stimulated right. by all of this stuff that the offline world was, was coming to appear rather dull. Corey, what's the longest time you spent off the web, away from you? Uh, my friend Paul on the front row just started giggling. Not very long. Five minutes, must ten minutes. Be said. No, I mean, I, th that's why they made transatlantic air voyages. All right. Is to give me 12-hour periods in which I don't access the Internet. But, you know, it, it would be amazing if using the Internet didn't change your brain because you only have one thing you think with, which is your brain, and using it changes it. And so climbing stairs changes your brain. It would be remarkable if using the Internet didn't change your brain in some way. But, and, and it's also true that our brains are finite, right? We can only pay so much attention to so many things. And so it's also true that when, you're right, there's an, an opportunity cost. When you pay attention to some things, you can't pay attention to others. And also the things that are novel can be quite compelling. But I, I want to bring back comp uh, regression to the mean, right? Like the, uh, I think one of the reasons that it feels like the internet keeps getting more compelling is because we're in an arms race between our cognitive uh, self-defense mechanism 
and, um, and firms that would like to command our attention, right? The reason, the reason things changed, uh, the reason we're not still doing Friendster, the reason it's not still Usenet, is because we had to come up with more compelling offerings because people ceased to be quite so interested in the old ways. Not everybody, There's, we, we have a normal distribution of, of cognitive capacity and preference, but the first, you know, the, the first two sigmas sort of wandered off and into something more interesting. Look, I want to open, open this out to the audience. Um, has anyone got any questions quickly here? Uh, anyone signal if you have, and then we can get a mic to you. It's a broad subject, so Dan. What about Dan here in the front row? You mean his mic super fast down front? Who's spoken in the previous one of the previous sessions? Well, I just want I'd maybe to say something about the neurobiology. I think Corey's right that you know people have been writing letters to each other in the time of John Keats. You know there were three posts a day, and that got people into all kinds of trouble and dangerous liaisons as a suicide as a result of uh, social interaction. Uh, so it's nothing new in that. Robin Dunbar has done some very interesting stuff about the evolution of the frontal cortex, the bit of the brain that sort of exploded around the time that language evolved and tool use evolved and social networks were developed. And it seems that about 120 is the number of people that you can keep track of, whether you're in a cave, in a village or online. And so while Corey's right that clearly our brains are changed by all of our experiences, there's no evidence yet, Pache, Susan, Greenfield, that a fundamental shift is happening in our brains and the number of people we can keep track of what our social network is uh, cognitively seems to be fairly fixed so I, I think we may be overcooking the fundamental brain change stuff Bibi, what about the children you filmed they surely was there any substantial change in their behaviour or do you, just, just, was it surface behaviour or do you think was there any kind of deeper change I think there was a lot of compulsive use and that actually that the big thing for them was sort of the reward technologies, the, the stuff that, that is deliberately there to extend use was the biggest problem for them and it didn't really matter whether it was texting you know I'm in Starbucks or watching porn or you know or actually going back to a pro site. you know it, it, it was the inability to actually turn it off that they struggled with the most. Well, what about the idea that they have now to, to kind of put themselves out in the market as a sort of little brand, you know? We all do that to an extent. Is that a problem when children are growing kids, up? Kids have always done that. It's just it's a much bigger room. You only used to have to be queen of your class, and now you have to be queen of a bigger, a bigger group. It's, it's a tough gig. It's more competitive. Are they more likely to be burned by this experience, or is it really just elderly people fussing about it? I think we're fussing a bit too much about the content and not enough about the structure. So that actually we should concern ourselves more about these issues of extended use, compulsive use, how to get off, how to sleep, you know. The statistics on kids coming into school without, you know, missing food, missing sleep, missing things, it, it's, it's big stuff, it's changing stuff. So I think we should be more concerned about that and a little bit less concerned about some of the content issues that we seem to get a bit hysterical about. What about the vanity that well, both adults and children are, are exhibiting? Do you think anything about that? But it seems to me that we are all these little brands, Twitter brands or whatever it is, and there is a sort of ridiculous vanity about it, is there not? Or do you find it perfectly acceptable normal behaviour? <laughs> for me, it seems extraordinary that people uh, care so much and want to display so much. And but people are. They want to display so much of their lives, you know? Um, there is a kind of sort of obsessive look at me 
quality to the web, which is that healthy? Sure. Well, some people call it narcissism. Some people call it transparency, and it has its uh, it has different boundaries, I think, for different people. And that kind of sharing, you know, look, I have a friend who some of us share in common, who is an, a self-confessed oversharer on the web, but he tends to share about his medical conditions. He shares about the travails that he's going through, and that has a lot of positive social benefit for some people. In other words, that level of sharing about his experience, that's at the root of services like patients like me, the participatory medicine movement, the idea that the greatest uh, healing, and this is scientifically proven, is going to come not simply from the know-how you get from the doctor, but the know-how that you get from other patients and other sufferers. Yeah. So when people are willing to put themselves out there in different ways by sharing the experiences that they've been through, it can have greatly beneficial social effects for people. At the same time, it may not be your vacation photos, um, that I so much want to see or know on Twitter what you ate for breakfast, but I may actually want to hear about your experience dealing with uh, your school and your local community, or maybe I want to hear about the disease, or maybe I want to know about the doctor you went to and whether his or her bedside manner was good or bad. So that sharing is what is at the root of the web and what's good about it. And so if it weren't for that kind of sharing, we wouldn't have people in that innate sort of drive towards collaboration that Corey talked about, that we wouldn't have people getting online and crowdsourcing solutions to problems. It's why you have, you know, the day after the Haiti earthquake, hundreds of volunteers going online to try to map where the healthcare centers are and doing that job, which would otherwise take years to do if done by one person, done in 24 hours. And we're seeing that again in crisis after crisis where people are willing to give of their time, give of their know-how, and share of their personal experiences very much for the benefit of others. So I think it's the minority of the content that we're seeing that is the narcissistic what I ate for breakfast stuff, um, which is, you know, one person's breakfast is another person's treasure. So we got to we got to follow them over. Just give very it very briefly in defense of narcissism, <laughs> uh, but not narcissism. I think that oftentimes when something seems narcissistic or unimportant, it's because we're not the intended audience, yeah. right? Uh, if all of those important messages that we all agree the web should be there for, it's cancer, it's not cancer. I got the job, I didn't get the job. She survived, mm -hmm. she died. Those messages are only significant because they exist in a in a kind of soup whose base is made up of all of the seemingly insignificant moments that bind us together socially. So, you know, when, when my wife gets up in the morning and I ask how she slept, it's not because I don't know, because we sleep next to each other, right? It's, a, it's like the world's easiest to decipher crypto. It just means, like, how are you? I love you. I'm thinking about you, right? Uh, and so if it seems trivial to you, perhaps it wasn't intended for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. It is, it, is, it is often said that people aren't as happy as they appear on Facebook nor are they as angry as they appear on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and we, have a, we are performing. We are performing right. to certain types right of audiences, mm -hmm. like now, and sometimes those audiences that we are performing to, for example, in the Proana communities, are very, very destructive and dangerous ones, but we get sucked into the performance of being part of that community, and as I said, for some people, that radically changes how they behave. That's mm. really interesting. Very good point to end on. Uh, unless we have... Just one question. Can, let's get the mic. Let's move with the mic. Here we go. The uh, lady in the front with the blue. Would like to ask a question? Yeah. Be nice to have a question. Hi. <clears throat> I would just be interested in how many personas each of the panel members has online. I have two Twitter feeds. One is my more normal one, and one is where I'm less favourable in my opinions. Oh. And that's probably because I'm not yeah. brave enough to combine the two. But I was interested in whether the panel had something similar. Well, I'll start with me. One. Well, while researching my book, about 500, mm -hmm. but um, now really only one. 
Oh, I, so I used to have a very active avatar in Second Life and avatars in other virtual worlds when one spent time in them. Uh, and now I have my own Twitter feed and I, uh, um, I confess that I sometimes tweet for my kid. <laughs> I, I mean, I have different auctorial voices. There's the voice I use when I'm writing fiction and nonfiction, writing for The Guardian and writing for Electronic Frontier Foundation. Those are all different voices and they reflect different aspects of who I am. And in terms of how many personas I have overall, well, it's sort of one per email correspondent, really, which is my major way of communicating with people because I certainly don't talk to my gran the way I talk to my uh, friends. And so, of course, I have different personas and different facets of my identity that I reflect. The great advantage for me of using email rather than Facebook is there's no puppeteer at the helm of, of, uh, of email who's got an ideological commitment to collapsing all the facets of your identity into one on the grounds that if you have more than one facet, you are two-faced. Uh, which is, you know, a sociopathic view of the human condition and one of the great reasons to just the great thing about life even life. not <laughs> use Facebook. <laughs> How many? Um, I started off with half a dozen and the more I learnt about the net, the less I have. So now I have none. No public ones. Really? None? Not even Twitter? No, nothing. I commendable. Anyway, thank you very much. <laughs> it was brilliant. We've got a fantastic panel. The, the panel's called Star Tech Enterprise, and suitably enough, we've got a set of, set of stars for you today. Uh, we have, to my right, I'm gonna, they've all got very impressive resumes. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna try not to uh, forget any of them by reading off my phone. This is, this is Karina Nami, uh, rhymes with army, she told me. Uh, <laughs> a rising star of British biotech. Karina is founder and CEO of Helix Nano, she attended Singularity University, which, uh, for those of you who don't know, is this incredible place on a NASA base in California, uh, uh, right in the middle of Silicon Valley. Then we've got Jamal Edwards. Jamal is, as I'm sure all of you know, one of Britain's most successful young entrepreneurs. He revolutionized the music industry with his YouTube channel, SBTV, uh, which broke acts like Ed Sheeran. Uh, scarily enough, Jamal pointed out to me in the beginning uh, when we bumped into each other today that he started SBTV 10 years ago when he was 14, which is uh, pretty damn impressive. Uh, we have Catherine Parsons, co-founder and CEO of Decoded, a technology education company teaching code, data and hacking to thousands of professionals worldwide and uh, changing uh, entire industries while she's at it. Julie Meyer, founder and CEO of Adrian Capital, an author of Welcome to Entrepreneur Country. I think we're in the middle of Entrepreneur Country right here. And, uh, and of course, uh, we have with us uh, Ronan, who can introduce himself very well as the, uh, as the CEO of O2, um, powering so much of what's good in the, in the modern economy. So let's, let's, let's kick off um, maybe, maybe with you, Julie. There's a lot of talk right now about startups. So it used to be the case in Britain that we were worried that we didn't have uh, enough of a, an entrepreneurial culture, enough of a, uh, a fear to fail. Do you think maybe the pendulum swung too far? What do you think about this, the craze around startups right now? Well, it was great to see Martha here just a couple minutes ago because the very first internet deal that I did was helping getting um, Brent and Martha funded. We did the first six million sterling investment in them in 1998. And it's true that when um, new media investors put in the money and then when we raised that next round with and for them, there weren't a lot of last minute dot coms out there. 
that were competing, which is, and they were so spectacular and exceptional anyway. But I think the important point about your question is have we shifted to a different stage of the game? And a lot of our thinking at Ariadne Capital and our whole ecosystem economics methodology is really based on the, the work of Carlotta Perez. And I really encourage, if you don't know who Carlotta Perez is, you should, actually, if you're in the room. Because what she says is that this is not about disruptive technology at all. That moment was about 1970. And every 60 to 80 years, the same thing happens, which is really kind of reassuring, because it means you don't have to understand the cosmos. You just actually have to read history. We're in the second half of the cycle where non-technology incumbents and technology players are pulling those derivative technologies in and embedding them. So we move from a moment of big bang, microprocessor, all that stuff, to a new common sense. So it's true that there's a huge competition of those digital enablers to get into partnership with the O2s and all of the other big companies right now. It's hard to say if it's too many. Mm. I mean, Jamal, you were one of the first, one of the youngest people ever to get an MBE, services to entrepreneurship and, and music. What's your take on starting a company and growing a company? Um, I think the biggest thing for me when I was 15 was that I didn't really have the infrastructure to sort of take it to the next level. Um, but now I'm sort of learning and getting all the sort of help from government and different grants and finding the right team around me to actually take it to the next level past what I've got already. But I think when I'm now going to schools and speaking to the kids, the biggest thing that I talk to them about is like tax VAT and learning how to register your company because that's the biggest thing that we don't get taught in school and that's the biggest thing that can also affect, affect your business. But now it's just about putting the right team around me. But when I first started off, it was quite daunting because there wasn't anything out there that I could try and find to help me grow SBTV. So I just learned it all from the internet. Yeah. Yeah. How to uh, hoodwink the tax man should be on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> Karina, you've, you've you know, worked and built companies in America and, and the UK. What, what would you say is the, the sort of difference in, uh, between these two scenes? How, how different is it? Wow, that's a, that's a big question. Um, many differences. I, so I originally grew up in London, but my first experience of being an entrepreneur was in San Francisco. And I learned a lot from the culture there. There's a real um, open sharing of ideas, so people aren't scared to talk about their ideas. They understand that ideas are plentiful, but execution is hard. And that open sharing creates this real community where people help each other out. Um, people are much less risk averse, as we've heard over and over again. They understand that failure is really experience and learnings that can be applied to the next um, the next venture. There's also, I think, one of the difficulties in the UK is around capital, is around funding. So last year, um, startups in the UK raised about $7 billion. Startups in the US raised about $40 billion. That's a very, very big difference. Um, it is improving here, so I think uh, this year saw a 40% growth on last year. But until companies in the UK have the kind of aggressive firepower that they need to expand globally and to make really big risky bets, it's going to be hard for us to compete. Um, but given the, 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 the UK, the, the American economy and population is you know, four, five times bigger than 
the UK is. Is that, is that gap well, as I'm serious? Well, I'm very ambitious for the UK because we're, we're English speaking, um, so we can address this global market. We have incredible technical universities. There's a great deal of talent here um, that I think is being underutilized. Mm. And we could really be a global power in terms of um, the digital revolution and, and um, being a big part of that picture, you know, punching bigger than our population size, but making use of the fact that we sit um, in a very unique position. So, so we've heard from Julie on the sort of startup culture right now and the, the change in equilibrium. Jamal about how things seem to have got easier for people to, to build, build companies, but, but also maybe uh, just now that uh, there's still some way to go. Catherine, you know, if, you were, if you were in government right now, what, what things would you do to try and move the needle uh, to, to help? It's been a kind of amazing experience. I mean, three years ago, I think if you told your parents that you wanted to be an entrepreneur, they'd look horrified. Whereas at least now, uh, there seems to be a kind of a sense of uh, entrepreneurship being uh, a good thing and actually the environment being less risky than it was maybe three or four years ago. Um, a lot of people putting a lot of effort into creating incubator spaces and digital resources that can tell you where to go to raise money. But I think it's just the beginning. Um, you know, we've been, um, I we've travelled to about 40 different cities teaching coding in the last year and actually got a real flavour uh, as, you know, we've been going around the globe of kind of where does, you know, the UK sit within the context of uh, entrepreneurship. And, and actually, I, I think it's one of the best places to start a business. Um, but there's so much more that can be done um, in terms of really believing that globally world-changing businesses can be born out of the UK. So continue to invest in digital skills, as Martha said, um, that are coming out of our universities, but also at that career change stage of people's lives. So when they're seven, when they're 17, when they're 27, when they're 70, and uh, continue to create an environment that is frictionless when it comes from idea right through to investment, right through to execution, um, so that um, anyone who has an idea that can scribble it down on a piece of paper mm. knows what avenue and what journey they can go on to make that a reality. Mm, thanks. Ronan, you run one of the biggest companies around. There's all this talk of startups and uh, startups being more innovative than big companies and whatever. Does that, does that annoy you? Do you think that's, do you think that's true? Is Not it? at all. As the, um, the founders of one of the most successful uh, incubators in the, in the world, in Waira, we're more than happy to be part of the equation. I think the exam question is, um, if we look at the UK and what's happened over the last few years, you've seen a doubling in the number of accelerator and incubator programs in the UK between 2011 and 2014. We've also seen that the statistics of businesses that go through those, we did research last year, says they're 12% more likely to survive. That's between 78% uh, approximately of an ordinary startup that hasn't been through and 90% for those who go through. And they also raise more money in their early rounds. I think the challenge that we have is from startup to scale up. And I think that's where the markets in the US are definitely more mature in my view. So I think we 
We have two challenges in the UK at the moment, as I would see it. We have a real north-south divide we have to address. More than two-thirds of the uh, programmes are based in the southeast and, and predominantly based in London. I think some of the current government's policies around a northern powerhouse might help us to shift some of the balance uh, of that. And then I think the second thing is how do we move from startup to scale-up. And I think that's where corporates can help. One of the interesting growth areas is 12% of the uh, programmes that are in the UK now are actually corporate-sponsored uh, programs. And Julie and I were just talking as we came in, having the opportunity for a startup to work with a big established business may be part of the secret of how they scale up. Very, very different cultures interacting between startup and, and, and big company. How, how, how do you possibly have two, two such different entities communicating properly? What, what's, your, what's the trick to making that well, work? In, in, in our case, we're very clear. We keep our... our Wire a startup um, outside the business, but we give it all the access it wants to the business. And I think that's quite an important uh, principle. It stands alone, but has access to whatever it wants. And what we aspire to do is to find the next Facebooks and whatever, as everybody else does. But we also want to cross-fertilize back into our own business and rediscover how big companies can be innovative. Mm. So I actually have first-hand experience of that with, with Helix Nano, we're working with Johnson & Johnson, um, which is a massive pharmaceutical company, of, of course. And um, it's all about setting up the right structure where, as the startup, you can take what you need from that environment without feeling vulnerable or without kind of giving away your secret sauce. Um, and I think a lot of big companies are realizing that innovation is coming increasingly from outside of their own entities, and they need to create this open campus type of environment where, the, where both can benefit. Mm. I mean, Julie, you've worked with a lot of companies, help them go from startup to scale up. I mean, what, what, are, the, what are the barriers that are still there preventing more companies just keeping velocity? A lot of established businesses um, really need to understand that their chief asset could be their customers. They have the ability to provide distribution, audience, reach. And no venture capitalist is going to give them 50 million euros, sterling, dollars, whatever, to build that audience, reach, et cetera, distribution. And so really what you have is startups, which are revenue-generating algorithms. They understand something about how to make money in the future. They're cars. They need a highway. And so the way to construct it is put the car on the highway. But the challenge is, and this is where it gets tricky, is that most of those highways are the digital players out in the valley. And in the world which has gone from analog to digital, we're no longer living in a linear world, we're living in an exponential world. If you're running, put your big company in the box, and if you're not living in an exponential growth world, in a digital world, you're getting further and further behind from the competition. So if you're bank number one, and you think you can bank, you compete with bank number two, you don't. You actually compete with Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Google, Uber, Airbnb, and so forth, which are living in a network world driven by exponential growth. So the real problem is actually the UK and Europe are creating supernova exits. Our entrepreneurs cashing out to US technology firms and making bundles of money to go buy houses in Hampstead? Yes, they are. That's good. Are the ecosystems which are where the network effects go, which is why Apple is worth nearly a trillion, are those ecosystems, platform companies with network effects, 
anywhere close to becoming more based in the UK. Sadly, it's getting much worse. So just as we're cashing out to US technology firms, because the dirty little secret is most of the European venture community has really only one play in their playbook, and that's to figure out which US technology firm they're going to sell you to. If we could get the banks and the Royal Mail and the telcos and the retailers to really take seriously that they have to become platforms with network effects, we could start to move the dial. Catherine, which US tech company do you want to sell your company to? <laughs> you're asking me all the challenges. <laughs> well, I know, I know you're right to the challenge. Um, um, the experience of America has been fascinating because uh, there is a kind of culture about entrepreneurship that is, uh, you know, very kind of go get it. Um, and that scale element, I, I'm not sure we could have started the business anywhere but here, weirdly. Um, in terms of talent, in terms of taking that kind of leap and in terms of the kind of sheer eccentricity of this as well. But in terms of scaling, um, America does kind of dangle a lot of kind of very tempting things at an entrepreneur. Um, and Jamal, I know that you're looking kind of scaling uh, self-belief around the world. And we were just chatting about it before. And, um, you know, but it's not just America. We're also um, opening in um, Asia as well. So that is a very fascinating market for I mean, Jamal, shouldn't, shouldn't you be in... LA, New York, San Fran right now. What are you doing here in, here in I London? I get asked to go to San Fran quite a lot, but I haven't been yet. Um, <laughs> but one of my, my, my next aims is to take it to um, South Africa and, and LA. But when I, when I went to uh, Beijing for a week, I had people in Asia saying, we want your content, we love Western culture, but um, in China you're not allowed YouTube, so can we take some of your videos and then spread it out there? So that's like another avenue that I want to go down. But I always keep that sort of UK uh, mantra with me is just like sort of trying to showcase people before it gets to the mainstream media. That's like my, my main thing. Mm. Yeah. And there's a sort of a sort of view that uh, starting a company is um, morally superior. There's something about the agency of starting your own company, taking on old industries. Do you, do you, do you feel that with what you're doing, that there's a kind of a bigger mission? Um, I never say it, but everyone always says um, that I was taken on MTV. Um, and I always aspired to be like MTV when I was a little bit younger. But now it's sort of, now I just want to keep on building a platform that can just grow um, to beyond belief. Like, I just hit 300 million views on my channel, so now I want to take it to like half a billion and a billion and keep on building it and take it to other places. But I don't have any aims in, in saying, oh, I'm going to be better than this company or I'm taking over. It's just sort of just to keep on building. It's a, it's a theme in a lot of conversations about, about tech, this London versus Silicon Valley question. And clearly all clusters are different and, and so on. But you know, what, what do you think it would take for London to really move ahead um, uh, in that kind of global race to be the innovation centre? Uh, so there are several aspects, but speaking from my experience, because Helix Nano is a health tech company and I, and I deal in the sort of world of deep technology and science, I think one of the things that we really need to get better at is commercialising some of the amazing IP that's coming out of our universities. So I saw an amazing statistic that you can track back almost half of the revenue in Silicon Valley to companies that came out of Stanford. And when you're there, you realize that Stanford is actually the powerhouse of Silicon Valley. And um, in the UK, we have a bunch of brilliant universities generating a great deal of IP, 
But I think last year we um, filed for 0.2% of patents globally. That's not good enough. Um, and the, the commercial terms that universities give here are much, much worse. So when entrepreneurs, students want to spin out companies and become entrepreneurs, the universities are not being long-term greedy, as they call it in the US. They're not thinking long-term. They're taking a big chunk up front and sort of strangling these startups before they even get off the ground. But it is improving. There's, a, there's another great stat in that, in that space, that uh, Stanford University attracts more private investment each year than Oxford, Cambridge, and Imperial combined, which I think sort of shows uh, how open Stanford is, I think, to, to doing business. Ronan, you know, as, a, as, a, as a big company, are you doing much with British universities? How, how, how does that work for you? Yeah, I'm actually going to Stanford on uh, Sunday week, so that might say something. Um, so what's going wrong? Uh, look, I, I, I think one of the things we have to think about is whether or not we want to uh, cover all bases uh, or whether we want to place some bets. And I think one of the developments that we've seen in the incubator and innovator space recently has been the development of some deeper tech spaces, and whether it be edtech, fintech, medtech, I think there's some evidence that the British economy has uh, significantly benefited from industrial policy in the last phase. I think we want a kind of a digital sector policy in this phase and actually try and be champions at a number of these things rather than come second or third in lots of things. Mm. I mean, you know, so these are, you know, opportunities and challenges. Um, women in technology, it's a big, big question. And I mean, Catherine, do you think there's an obstacle? Do you think there's something? Well, I'm really going glad on? that you mentioned it because there are lots of women on the stage. There are lots of women in the audience. But as Martha said, it is a crisis. And um, if you believe, like Ronan said, that technology has changed everything, and that we are, um, we need to change uh, as human beings. Our, our society needs to move with that shift. Women cannot get left behind in that. And um, I certainly feel that I hear a phrase that women's brains don't work that way when it comes to technology. I hear that every single week. Uh, can you imagine something else that you would say that about? Um, and you know, we, we've looked at the difference between men and women and their ability to code. There's no difference in computational thinking, but there's a huge difference in confidence. So, so you, you train you know, thousands of people in, in coding, train men and women. Women do just as well as men on your courses. I can't believe you're even asking this question. <laughs> you raised it. You raised it. <laughs> yes, this is not some... Number one, it's not magic. You know, and there, there is something about technology that feels like it's magic. The thing that's affecting the entire world cannot be owned by 1%. Um, and you know, women need to be coding the products that are increasingly changing our lives and affecting businesses, and they need to be founding those businesses as well. Mm. And uh, a pretty damning bit of research is about to come out um, for the launch of London Technology Week about the state of women in technology in London. Um, and you could look at that really negatively or set an ambition that the UK could potentially be the best place in the world when it comes to women 
and technology. But we need female VCs. I think there are six female partner VCs that's in Europe. True. No, no, that's not true. Somebody, I think Mike Butcher said something around on tech <laughs> and I thought, just because he doesn't know who they are doesn't <laughs> yeah. mean they that there's exist. not about six dozen. So I could give you a list of the female partners. Well, there's fewer issue. female VCs who are partners that have set up their own firm. But the money is there in the hands of the women and so forth. But, um, but the, the, it's true, we back about 40% women in our venture fund and we're not trying, right? Mm. We're just simply doing that. I'm, I'm almost certain, and I would love to create some visibility about this, that there is generally a belief that um, women's ideas aren't as big or ambitious and change the world-ish. And mm -hmm. I hear that a lot, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, being a founder of a business. The, the important thing, though, is that, and I'm sure everybody in this room doesn't need, you know, convincing about this, you never win by playing by somebody else's rules, ever, ever. This whole concept of breaking through somebody else's glass ceiling, own the glass ceiling, right? Then if you want to break through it, if you want to make a new glass ceiling, whatever you want to do, but own the glass ceiling. That's why we should be encouraging women to set up their own business mm -hmm. rather than trying to get on the boards of public companies. Mm -hmm. It just honestly is not the route to fulfillment of any kind. Mm -hmm. But the world is becoming feminine. It really is. So if you take all of the good characteristics, transparency, group collaboration, and call them feminine, right? They're becoming increasingly important in management and leadership. It's, uh, I think something like only 11% of Silicon Valley executives are, are women. Do you, do you think this is an area where London really could definitively you know, beat the valley by being a much more equal, fair place than, uh, than California? I mean, absolutely. In a way, we are starting with more of a blank canvas. So we could set the terms and we could set the agenda. Mm. Um, there are a lot of women in Silicon Valley, but you notice that they are um, in peripheral sort of roles, less so in technical and decision-making roles and more so in supporting roles. And I think it would be great to change that. I mean, at, at Second Home, uh, we, we started with a blank canvas and almost half of the CEOs and founders there are, are women. So it shows you, you can, you can do it. I mean, Jamal, you know, you, with, with what you're seeing on, on YouTube, you know, and the different ways in which people can express themselves. You know, how do you think sort of diversity is coming to life in, in, in your world? Um, I find the being diverse via content is just by the people I film. So if I, if I do a video with um, Little Mix or Ed Sheeran, I'll get an influx of uh, females on, on the channel, but then it's just about keeping them in the channel, in the ecosystem. And then once they're in the ecosystem, I've then had them apply for jobs and then now a, a social media manager, SBTV, predominantly it was, a, it was a, a male that was doing it, but now it's a female doing it, and that was because they watched the channel, and it was just me expanding the sort of remit of music that I actually put out on the channel. Mm, fantastic. Well, I could talk to these guys all day. I'm probably going to, um, but we're, we're just about out of time here. We've talked about everything from women to London to what's wrong and, and what's right. I've accidentally maybe offended Catherine, um, <laughs> and uh, sorry about that. Um, but uh, it's been a fascinating conversation, so thank you all, and thank you to the great panellists. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 
What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.